Hello, and welcome to Third Time's a Charm, the show that takes an in-depth look at the third installment of a franchise. Today's episode is Resident Evil Extinction from 2007. I'm your host, Mike, and this show is in no way affiliated with the Umbrella Corporation. Today, I welcome back Kara Gale O'Regan from Wistful Thinking and Cage Club co-founder Joey Lewandowski as my two extra lives that I'm going to need while traversing this video game wasteland. This is the first movie based on a video game franchise that I am covering on Third Time's a Charm, so I guess this could be considered a milestone. Be sure to check out the latest season of Cinemaker starting November 19th, where Kara joins Joey and myself to cover the entire filmography of Amy Heckerling. Third Time's a Charm will just happen to be crossing over with the new seasons of Cinemakers more than once this December, as both shows will be simultaneously covering and releasing episodes for The National Lampoon's Vacation and Look Who's Talking Franchises. Because Amy Heckerling directed movies in both franchises, and each series has reached Part 3. Plus, both of those Part 3s are Christmas movies. Today's show is a little special in that it's been sitting on the third time's a shelf for a few months. I had intended to release this episode in August as part of Season 1, but if you've been listening then you know that it's Season 1 forever, and so this episode got a little lost in the shuffle. I wound up releasing a two-part Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome episode in September instead, to cross over with the Watch the Throne episode of Mad Max Fury Road after ditching my season concept, and after that, I never looked back. It's taken until now for me to catch back up with Alice and the caravan of survivors as they look for sanctuary from the Zomboid Horde. Be sure to stick around to the end for third time's a book. There hasn't been a book club for a few episodes now, and it's back in full force. Then stick around till the very, very end, post-credits as it were, for another little extra bit. But here we finally are, the video game apocalypse. So everyone, grab your kukuri blades, a lot of suntan lotion, and pack into that helicopter, because we're about to be extinct. Time's a Charm. This is Resident Evil Extinction from 2007, directed by Russell Mulcahy. Joining me today, I have two guests to round out this table. First up, you might know her from Wistful Thinking. Please welcome to the show, Kara. Welcome back. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. You were previously on the Jaws 3D episode and the Jurassic Park 3 episode and the Mad Max episode. Also joining me today, you might have heard him if you listened to the Superman 3 episode or if you listen to any other show on our network. Please welcome the co-founder of Cage Club back for his third appearance, Joey Lewandowski. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. I am already learning so many things in this podcast. I learned that this was not directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. Like, I thought that he did all of them. Like, I didn't even look. I didn't do the research. I thought he did all of them. But apparently, it turns out, he didn't do two or three. No, this is directed by the guy who did the Total Eclipse of the Heart music video. Whoa! Mm-hmm. Pioneered an wow. entire genre of music videos. Amazing. 
It gets even deeper, guys. Paul W.S. Anderson directed the first one, then he directed four, five, and six, and he wrote all of them, and he produced all of them. So this is pretty much his baby. Uh, He didn't do number two and three because he was off doing other films like Aliens vs. Predator, Three Musketeers, lots of other movies. Another video game adaptation, DOA. Oh, wow. I didn't. I wasn't aware of that. Uh, Mortal Kombat was one of his sort of benchmark films when he was younger. Oh, boy. He is married to the star of this film, Mia Jovovich. They are still married. Sure is. That was the one bit of research that I did because I was like, when did they get married? Because there were a couple times early in this movie that the camera is objectifying Mila. And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird that her husband is objectifying her. But then I was like, oh, no, because they they might not have been together because like they started dating when they made the first movie and then they got together and he, he proposed to her. But I think maybe she said no or like they took some time off, but then they got back together. And then she had a baby the year this movie came out. So I don't know if she's pregnant while shooting this. No, I saw pictures of her at the like from the premiere, and she's like a thousand months pregnant. So oh wow, okay, so she yeah. okay, yeah. And one of their daughters actually is in the final chapter. Does she play uh, the Red Queen? Not only does she play the Red Queen, she plays young Alice as well. So she oh, has wow. a, a couple roles. Double in that duty. Movie. We'll get to that a little bit later, maybe. But I also want to touch on this director for a second, Russell Mulcahy, because he is not a stranger to the network. The Real Bad podcast has covered one of his movies. It is called Highlander. Oh! So he did Highlander 1 and 2, and then also he directed a pretty fun movie called The Shadow that I liked, with Alec Baldwin as the shadow superhero. Wow, he's directed a ton of things. He's directed 39 episodes of Teen Wolf. Yeah, the new Teen Wolf, the like the dark, edgy, teen-oriented wolf, Teen Wolf, <laughs> the one targeted to today's youth, the way that they turned Riverdale dark. Which is fantastic, by the way. I really love the new Riverdale. But yeah, so this is the third film in the franchise. It does not have the number in the title. It is just Resident Evil Extinction. It is not Resident Evil 3. It is also the most recent film that we've covered by like a decade. (laughs) Is it also objectively the worst film that you've covered? I think that's fair to say. I will concede to that up front as well. I want to like this movie a lot, but I just don't think it... It works properly. But it's not terrible. Like, it's oh, it's fine. It's a fine movie. <laughs> well, it could be far worse. Like, Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, it's got some interesting ideas. I'm just not sure they all play well together. I think that this movie is not very well served by the decade of zombie TV shows and movies that have come since then mm-hmm. that have all looked like this and that have all sort of played out like this. Like, the fact that the entirety of The Walking Dead has happened since this movie came out <laughs> makes stuff like this seem like, oh, right, I've seen this a million times before. I think at the time as well, there was a bit of zombie fatigue because not only with, like, Romero's Land of the Dead and Resident Evil resurrecting some of the zombie craze, there was also Zack Snyder's remake of Dawn of the Dead. And, I mean, it was just coming back into the culture at that point, too. And I think the Walking Dead comic may have been out as well. So, yeah, even before... Before this came out, I think there might have been a bit of, like, people retired to a degree. But yeah, looking at it now, the stuff like Walking Dead, that's kind of, just the look of this movie isn't really, I don't know if the zombie stuff really holds up to today's standards. But the Resident Evil franchise is kind of, like, the CG is never always perfect, and it is a little more tongue-in-cheek, not always trying to be super serious. 
So I've only seen the first three. I'm not sure that it's always tongue-in-cheek. Like, I remember, I haven't seen the first one in a while. I've seen the first one a couple times, and I don't remember it being really tongue-in-cheek. I remember the first one being sort of, like, gory and good and cool. Later on, it sort of developed, especially in the second one, a little more of, like, a comedic I got personality edge to it. And, yeah, just trying to differentiate itself from some of the more serious stuff coming out at the time. Well, that could just be me. Before I ask you guys about your history, I kind of want to dive into the history of this franchise a little deeper than I normally do, just because it's kind of cool and a little strange. This is the first movie I'm covering based on a video game, in a big video game franchise, so that's a big first. Yep. This is based on the Resident Evil games in Japan. They were called Biohazard. In this movie, they throw that term around a lot, I think, for fan service. There's a lot of that going on. And also, in America, the seventh Resident Evil, the newest one, is called Resident Evil Biohazard. So the new one is, I guess, both names wrapped into one. Nice. Here's something I found out, I can't remember, a couple years ago, two or three years ago, found this on a deep dive into the internet, and it's up there on the Wikipedia page and everything, so it's not hard to find anymore, but the Resident Evil franchise, it has a kind of interesting origin story. Going way back to 1989, there was this movie called Sweet Home in Japan. It's a haunted house J-horror movie. It's really cool. It's got a lot of atmosphere. And at the time that that movie was being developed, there was a game being developed at Capcom for the Famicom system, which is the Nintendo Entertainment System in Japan. The directors got together, talked to each other, and produced this material in conjunction with one another so that when the movie came out, there would be a game out that holiday season that the kids could play. And this game is a survival horror RPG from 1989 on the Nintendo. And you walk around the house and it's kind of like Final Fantasy or Dragon Warrior, if you've ever seen those games. You run around, you fight monsters, you gain experience points, and you follow the story and you find clues. And when the PlayStation came out, the director of the game Sweet Home was like, oh, I'm going to I want to remake my game and uh, I'm going to do it, you know, in the new fashion in 3D and it's going to be for the PlayStation. But apparently that name was licensed in America or something. So they had a contest to rename the game and they ended up calling it Resident Evil. And then in Japan, they released it as Biohazard. But yeah, so basically Resident Evil has its roots in cinema. It's like a movie that was adapted into a game that was remade into Resident Evil. Kind of interesting. I knew none of that. Yeah, me neither. I know I just dropped like a lot of info down. You sure did. I mean, that might have come out as a bit of a lecture or something, but the, the game's really cool. You could go check out footage of it on YouTube. You know, if you speak Japanese, you can buy the card on eBay. There's actually American translated versions of the game you could get pirated online and play on emulators, and it's pretty cool if you want to check that out and see where Resident Evil originated from. But yeah, I thought it was kind of cool how it comes full circle, like all the way back to movies. And here we are. Born and died in the movies. So I want to ask you guys a little bit about your history with the franchise now. Kara, what is your history with the franchise Resident Evil? Well, I never played the video game because I don't care about video games. But I've seen all of them, I think, except for the most recent, the uh, final chapter. I love this franchise. It's really fun like if you don't take it too seriously it's really nice to see not just one woman kicking a lot of ass but like throughout the franchise there's there are several other really badass women characters that aren't alice like jill valentine she's not in this one though she's in the book we'll get there 
how, <laughs> how exciting. But yeah, no, I really I like this franchise a lot. I watched, which one is this? Extinction? <laughs> They're hard to keep track of. I watched this one on Friday and then over the course of the weekend went back and watched the first and second one too. So I am fresh on the first three movies. Nice. You went deeper than I did. I didn't go back and watch any of the movies, but I did watch this movie once with audio commentary and then twice on its own all the way through. So I studied it. What are you doing with your life, Mike? (laughs) This movie flies by. It's about 80 minutes, 85 minutes without credits. Yeah, it's really quick. But Joey, uh, how about yourself? I mean, I know you're into video games as well as films. And this is both. I am. So I have a uh, complicated history with this. I rented the first one for PlayStation 1 from our local grocery store that had movie and game rentals, brought it home, was playing it in front of my mom and grandma, because my grandparents were visiting. They were like, oh, no, this is way too violent. You are not allowed to play this game. So they drove me back to the store and made me return the game and get a different game. And so then for a while, I just didn't play it. And I bought the games on probably like a dozen different platforms. Like, I think I own all seven somewhere, or plus, you know, the spinoffs and all the, you know, side games and whatever. And I don't know that I've ever actually played one. Worse than movies, I have a problem with buying games and not playing them. So I almost played one once, but didn't. And then for the <laughs> movies, I was allowed to see the first one in theaters. I went to see it with my dad. I remember that. And I really liked it. And then I still think, and I still haven't seen it in a couple of years, like I was saying before, up until this year's Tomb Raider, I still think that the first Resident Evil was like the best movie based on a game ever. I just like it. I think that it's cool. I think Mila's cool in it. I like, you know, of course, I gotta love Michelle Rodriguez because she's Letty. She's cool in it too. There's something about the first one I really like. And then for whatever reason, I didn't see any others in theaters. I saw Apocalypse at Home once and I saw Extinction at Home once and then no more. And so I just watched this one again for the second time and I think I remembered why I didn't watch anymore because it's just like, I feel like I've seen this. Like I don't, it's not bad, even though it is kind of bad. It's just not anything that makes me want to say like, oh, I want to see three more movies of this. So there's six in total. This is the third. The one that comes after this, I think, is Afterlife? Afterlife. That's 2010. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I saw that one in theaters in 3D, which was really interesting. They used 3D really well in that situation. It was shot entirely like with 3D cameras. I think Afterlife and Retribution, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah, so the 3D in that is great, but I think that one's actually my favorite. I've only seen it maybe twice, whereas the other ones I've seen a bunch, like when they're on TV. But that one's actually really good. Wait, your favorite comes later in the franchise? Like it's next one? Yeah. Wow. Favorite costume, too. Mila Jovovich designed her own costume in this. Just going to drop trivia as we go along throughout this. Yeah, Joey, this one is pretty distinct as far as the look and style. Like, the other ones, this feels out of world. Like, the other ones feel much more, like, the look is way more cohesive, I think. Yeah. And just even the um, the color temperature of it is completely different. It's the only one that happens, like, outside during the daytime. So it's just a very different movie than the other one. So in the next one, are there a bunch of Alice's or is there just one? Oh, it starts it starts with like the army of Alice's. Yeah. Okay. It's at least worth watching the opening sequence on YouTube or something, but I don't I can't remember much about the rest of the next movie. My history with this franchise is I remember when this game came out, I was like a junior or senior in high school and we would cut class to go home and play this game. Wow. 
Like, I remember ditching class to beat the game with one of my best friends one day. We just would stay up and, like, have sleepovers on the weekends and play this game together to no end because PlayStation was new and it was, like, kind of blowing our minds. I didn't really play it as much as I've, like, watched my friends play it and, like, would shout out clues and things. But I remember getting, like, the shit scared out of me several times just watching this game be played. I didn't play any of the other games really. I remember I got it for GameCube and I got like halfway through it, but I never beat it. So my history with the games isn't very big. But the movies, yeah, I've seen all of these. I saw the first three in theaters. So I saw this one in theaters. And I will tell you, it is the last movie I fell asleep in the theaters watching. I mean, I remember vividly just like waking up towards the end of this movie in theaters. I'm stunned that it hasn't happened since, because I've fallen asleep in a handful of movies like this year alone. I dozed off definitely during Silence, the Scorsese movie, but I mean, how (laughs) can't you? That thing is like five hours and it's very quiet. I didn't see four and five in theaters, but I did end up going to see six just to sort of pay homage to the franchise. It's um, it's crazy convoluted. It restructures the entire storyline. Like, it retcons almost everything. So this movie... In the long run, doesn't really matter too much. Dr. Isaacs does show up again in the last movie. Sir Jorah Mormont. Yeah, yeah. He shows up as two clones in the last movies. Whoa. Yeah, he finds out that he's a clone and like goes insane. So I guess they tie this together somewhat, but they gloss over a lot of this movie throughout the entire franchise. I don't know if you go back to this in a segment later on the show or anything like that, but how did these movies do box office-wise? Obviously, they were successful enough to keep going. Like, I know that they were all in theaters, but if also if you told me, like, hey, you know, after the third one, they just were straight to DVD, I'd be like, oh, that makes sense. Like, I know they weren't, but it feels like they could have been. I didn't research the box office at all, but if you were to... I'm going to go take a look. While you take a look, I mean, for me, what I think of is the international market must be enormous for this franchise. Like, it is just a hyper realistic action that's kind of at times incomprehensible, you know? So like you don't really need a grasp of the language to follow these movies all that much, especially this one. This one's very low dialogue. Yeah, there's no uh, dialogue in the first five minutes. So the first movie made $100 million. The second one made 130 This one made 148 Then, out of nowhere, Afterlife makes 300 because internationally it makes 240 foreign. The fifth one, Retribution, makes 240 And then the final chapter makes over $300 million. And the last three, in the U.S., it was 60 42 and 26 But overseas, it's 240 197 and 285 So I don't know what they did differently in terms of promoting overseas, but like this was the last one of like very successful box office where it's like incredibly successful box office. Hmm. Maybe the return of Paul W.S. Anderson as director might have had something to do with getting more backing or something or just enthusiasm with the marketing and everything. But he did come back for those last three and that is a, that is quite a boost. Because all of them, aside from the final chapter, which only made 26 in America, like they all made between 40 and 60 here. So it's like they're all success. Like that's fine because I think they all had budgets lower than that. But overseas is where they really made their bank and it's just, that's crazy. And also in America, like, you know, these might not be the most polished movies. They're basically B-movies with these million-dollar budgets and stuff, but I really feel like the girl power behind these movies is filling seats. It's just kind of cool that, okay, this time we get to see her shooting zombies instead of him shooting zombies. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I feel like these plots and the storylines can be kind of familiar and sort of rote at times, and it can still be entertaining. 
the second movie is my favorite, I think, because it's just that generic zombie outbreak in a major metropolitan city. But it's like Jill Valentine and Alice kicking ass instead of like, you know, Joe Schmo and his best buddy. This is interesting because this is taking a lot from Mad Max and all of that motif is taking a lot from Day of the Dead. So it's not really doing a lot new per se, but it's presenting it through like new eyes, like through these new characters as far as like the gender. In this, not only do you have Alice, but you also have Claire. So she's like a very formidable leader in this movie. And that's Allie Larder, right? Yes. But you also have Ashanti shooting at zombie birds. Oh, that's right. And can we just take a moment to say not just those three ladies we mentioned, but also the guy who plays Carlos. Like, people in the apocalypse are just beautiful, men and women. Yeah, they are. Very attractive. Well, so I went down like a really deep rabbit hole about the makeup in these movies, like specifically on the women's faces and specifically on Alice's face, because I noticed that like for most of the film, she has what's called a no makeup makeup look, meaning that she is actually wearing makeup, but it's makeup that's supposed to look like she's not wearing makeup. And then in some shots... It looks like she's wearing so much bronzer, and it's just, like, really bizarre. And So I was just, like, looking at pictures and, like, comparing them and trying to figure out what was happening. And then finally came across something in the Wikipedia article that, like, there was some noticeable digital airbrushing on a lot of the close-ups on Mila's face. Oh. Which apparently viewers were confused at and found unnecessary and that was what i was like obsessively trying to figure out because in like a lot of the stills like she doesn't look like i thought she was looking like while i was watching the film so that was interesting they didn't mention any of that in this audio commentary but i do remember listening to the audio commentary of the second film and this is kind of interesting this relates because Paul W.S. Anderson says with the latest technology, what they would do in that movie is they would just go into After Effects and they would highlight her eyes and make a mask, like a digital mask of it, and just like brighten them or change them or tone them a little bit. And they're like, oh, that opened the door to like shave like a little bit off her chin or whatever, or like, you know, put on the digital touch and all that sort of thing. I feel like setting yourself up to, like, shave a little bit off her chin in, like, a few scenes, like, keeping that up for the rest of the franchise, like, you're giving yourself a lot of work just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah. I found myself thinking about Botox several times during this movie. In the very first scene, when she first wakes up, she does some incredible eyebrow acting. I don't know if you noticed this, Joey. I did not, but I've been thinking about eyebrows since you started talking about makeup. This movie opens with a naked girl laying in a shower. As the first movie does. So I want to talk about that. So, like, the whole first, like, five or ten minutes of this movie is like, hey, guys, do you remember the first movie? You remember how much you liked that movie? Well, let's, like, just hit the greatest hits here. We got her waking up naked in a shower. We got that red dress. We got that mansion. We got those dogs. It's like, okay, we get it. Like, I remember all of this from the first movie. Why are we seeing all of this? Well, I think it serves a couple of purposes. The first being, if you haven't seen those first movies, it's kind of, like, bringing you into this world. And the second thing, like, the thing that I really noticed in the first five minutes or however long it is where there is no dialogue um, but I noticed that like this movie more than the first two it has like a very strong aesthetic to it like it's a, aesthetically a very strong film like more so than the first two and like her red dress and stuff really like contrasts the dusty brown wasteland that's happening so right from the outset of the film we see this character in stark contrast to the background which I thought was interesting 
this world kind of creates the two separate worlds. There's like the underground lab, which is like the sort of like the cool dark place. And then there's like the daytime up on the actual surface area. So like, I think they're also trying to create that sense of contrast there as well. Like, I kind of like this. This is funny, though, because to me, this is like something you definitely see with like part threes. It's like you go back to the first movie and you mine it for whatever the best stuff is, but you don't do it all at the start of your movie, you know, like you pepper it in throughout. Like the dog thing comes a little bit later and then later on they they call back the birds and a little later on they're like, oh, this movie has a hive also and you're going to get sort of the 3D digital mapping and everything. It's like those are throughout the movie, but this is a little jarring to me until we find out that it's the doctor sort of conducting his experiments and and then we find out she's a clone and I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty cool, but it still does feel like, remember the laser grid people think that was the best part of the entire franchise and we're just gonna well we get it twice we get it at the beginning and we get it at the very end but it doesn't feel like they're setting that up as the end it it definitely feels like the the major callback yeah one more thing about her waking up again because she wakes up so many times throughout the franchise like multiple times within the individual movies and then across the course of the franchise like as annoying as that is and as like kind of disturbing as that is as a woman seeing a woman like wake up and have no idea where she is I think it's an interesting kind of homage to like the video game form because when you're like coming back after dying in the video game you're kind of starting from that same point again yeah I got that a little bit too with the clones like the idea that those were her previous the previous lives like the players lives that have been spent i got it a little bit later too when there's like an alice cam point of view and it's sort of like first person shooter alice that they're watching through this was a movie where i sort of like tuned out for a little bit and then i was like i should probably read the wiki just to make sure i wasn't missing anything and then i was like oh no i know exactly what's going on like i didn't like even if i miss things i didn't really miss things you know what i mean there's just things that happen and you know there's not a whole ton going on here It is very dragged out. I agree with that. There is not a whole lot going on. They're trying to at least bank on a lot of atmosphere and a lot of mood. I actually kind of hope you saw the previous two movies because LJ and Carlos and Alice, we're not going to reestablish these people. We're not going to get deeper into any of these characters. We barely get to learn about Claire all that much. We mostly just get it through her actions and not even like what she's saying. Alice is kind of aloof in this movie. There's a little more to what she's about in the book. It's a little more alluded to there. But, oh, I gotta talk about this because this is major, major sequel part three stuff here that we got a little of like a proto version of this with Rocky three, but this is like the real deal. So like the satellite sort of like zooms up from the pile of dead Alice corpses and we get her voiceover flashback about the outbreak and everything. The Umbrella Corporation thought they'd contained the infection. They were wrong. Raccoon City was just the beginning. Within weeks, the T-virus had consumed the United States. Within months, the world. The virus didn't just wipe out human life. Lakes and rivers dried up, forests became deserts, and whole continents were reduced to nothing more than barren wastelands. Slowly but surely, the Earth began to wither and die. What did you guys think of how this movie reorients you as a viewer? It was fine. There's not a whole lot to bring you up to speed. It's like, hey, there's a virus. Things went bad. There's this company called the Umbrella Corporation. They're bad at things and also bad people. And now we're good, right? 
I think it's a little more than that. The entire death of the planet. But not a lot more. Like, it is a little more. I don't want I don't want to, like, make fun of it, because I really do genuinely love the first movie, and I do like the idea of the games and everything. You know, I can't really say I like the games because I haven't played them. Like, I don't want to, like, just shit on this franchise, but, like, there's not a whole ton going on here. There's, like, a little bit, but it's just, it's mostly, like, a cool way to see, like, badass ladies killing zombies, which is fine. There's basically two major developments in this movie that are new, quote-unquote. I think one was alluded to in the last movie, but not really explored, is that Alice now has psychic powers. Yeah, where did that come from? Well, they had, like, been experimenting on her, like, in between the first movie and the second movie. Yeah, at the end of the first movie, she gets sort of, like, captured by the Umbrella Corporation, and they inject her with the T-virus, and it bonds to her perfectly, and so Dr. Isaacs wants her back because she has, like, the original virus in her system that he can work with and develop a cure or do whatever he needs to do with it. Kara, is it just me? And Mike, you might know the answer to this too, but she just watched the movie. Is it just me or is in Apocalypse, is Alice not in it for a while? Like, doesn't it start with Jill Valentine or no? Yeah, I think so. I don't know if they use the exact same clip from the first movie. You see her, like, wake up in a paper dress again and, like, pull all these things out of her body and escape from the Raccoon City hospital where she's been the Umbrella Corporation facility. And it's like a 28 days later kind of situation. And then she and Jill Valentine meet up at some point. Yeah, she just kind of crashes through a church window on a motorcycle at one point. Oh, right. I remember that. It's so good. That part is actually really awesome. Yeah, so her appearance in this is sort of echoing that in a way. We find out in the book, but we don't know why in the movie that she's separated from her crew. Because at the end of the last movie, they like take her away and she's like with the scientist's daughter and that girl isn't in this movie we find out what happened to her in the book but i feel like they just wanted to get her away from the caravan so that they could reenact like her big dramatic introduction scene even though we've been following her for a while already I think it would have been cooler if she didn't have this run-in with Hills Have Eyes and... Yeah, I was trying to place that and I couldn't figure out, like, what movie that was referencing, but that's exactly what it is. We get the killer dogs, which are always cool, but we could have gotten those later as well. I mean... You know, it's not like there's an explanation for the crows exactly, right? Like, they just kind of swoop down. Like, there could have just been packs of wild dogs. No, earlier you see a regular crow eating a corpse... And it's like a regular crow. And I, cause I wrote it down, oh fuck the crows. And that was significantly nice. before <laughs> the whole bird sequence. So there is like a little bit of foreshadowing if you, if you're paying attention. So another thing that this movie establishes is the idea of like the scorched earth. Like, so since the last movie, I don't know how many, I don't know if it's been more than the length of time it took to make this movie, more than three years, but it's been five years. Okay. So since that time, everything is in ruins. We actually get a tally in the book of the approximate number of people left alive on the planet. So right now there's 1,733,548 people alive around the world. Like that's it. That is a new development. In the last movie, the outbreak had only taken over one city and now it's like the T-virus has spread to crops. It has polluted the air. It has just like taken over everything. This was cut out of the the script, but there was like an international criminal trial and like the Umbrella Corporation was actually found guilty for this whole thing happening. And so it's like a little more than you were talking about, Joey, as far as what transpires. I know, I know, I know. 
what this franchise does well, I think it's not just your typical zombie film in that you just get zombies. Like you get weirdo sort of sicko creatures, you know, mutants and things. You get what I love the most, which which I would love to see a whole movie about on its own is is zombie animals. And I feel like that is, you know, something that can be mined extremely well that is just never really dealt with all that much. So I really like the inclusion of that, even if they are also sort of saying, hey, remember the this part of the game? Like when you had to fight the, the crows in the game? Like I wish they, you know, had sort of expanded it out some way and saw some like horses or something else, you know, a lion uh, somehow. There had to have been a zoo nearby. You should watch the TV show Zoo. It sounds like that will be everything you're looking for. I'm aware of the show. I have vague knowledge of it. I already <laughs> thought it sounded pretty cool, but all I needed was a recommend that wasn't my mom's. So <laughs> I've got one. Yeah, no, I liked it a lot. I finished it in like a few days. Okay, so we meet Alice. She's on the road. She's a badass. She's on her own. We meet Dr. Isaacs, Ian Glenn, the guy from Game of Thrones, who just came off of doing Hamlet right to the set of this. So I feel like there's like four of him. We already know that like, yes, he is a clone, but there's like at least four other guys who are basically the same character in the first two movies, right? But he's supposed to be a different guy. Yes, he is a different guy. In the second movie, there was certainly an evil doctor. And there was actually, there was a good, there was like a benevolent doctor too. The evil scientist took the good doctor's work and like, you know, turned it into a monster. Oh, right, Uh, right, right, right. right. The first movie is just the Raccoon City, the stars squad that go in. So I don't know if we rescue any scientists in that movie, but definitely this guy feels exactly like the guy in the last movie. Yeah, because I thought he was just the same guy, and they just had been like, oh, he didn't actually die. And his thing, though, I gotta tell you guys, have you seen the original Day of the Dead by George Romero, by any chance? I saw it once a long time ago, and remember none of it. Yeah, same. One of the main threads about it is that the military is underground trying to solve the zombie crisis, and it's like, what is causing these? And they basically are down to one scientist because the rest have either gone mad or been bitten and had them been shot or whatever. And it's ba- he's basically doing what Dr. Isaacs is doing in this movie, except he's not an asshole. Like, he's lost his mind, but he's like a jolly scientist in Day of the Dead. But he's basically doing the same thing. Like, instead of giving him a cell phone, he gives his zombie, like, a Walkman. It's like a very famous scene, I think. And I don't know, I was a little bummed that they just, you know, like, I was cool when, when I was like, all right, you're doing Mad Max. But then I was a little bummed that they couldn't really figure out their own evil storyline in a way, you know, like you're Resident Evil, I guess you're going to have mad scientists and stuff. But it was just like, the scene was just like right out of the other movie. Yeah, but I mean, they do that. I feel like there were just so many kind of like in this movie particularly there are so many callbacks to so many other horror movies because you do have Day of the Dead you do have The Hills Have Eyes you do have The Birds you know it's like all of these like super iconic stuff from horror and genre so-called genre films that they're I guess paying tribute to in this that makes sense that scene with the crows is certainly The Birds 2007. The birds like viciously tearing everybody to shreds. Yeah, I think it's the best part of the movie. You like that more than when we find out that Isaac's is like talking to holograms? Yeah. That's what I mean. Like this movie is kind of schlocky, but I like that about it. That's why I wish I could like it more. I wish it sort of went all out. Yeah, it's not wacky enough. Like it's not crazy enough. The first one, for what it is, is grounded in reality. And I don't remember the second one as much, but this one could be insane and it's just not. One of the major, major problems too is that 
all of the stuff with the caravan is just way too serious. Like, there they're really sort of slacking. I mean, you have the LJ character, but he's just not funny. I mean, he's supposed to be funny. Yeah, because he has the best line from the Sega movie when he is, like, driving through the city that's, like, abandoned, and he hits one of the zombies with his car and screams, GTA, motherfucker! (laughs) He's really funny in the second movie, and they just, like, don't let him spread his wings in this one. (laughs) Yeah, this caravan stuff, there needed to be just a little more fun involved in there somehow. The joke with Kmart just like falls completely flat to me. They found her in a Kmart, so she's like, that's my name, my name is Kmart. I thought that was supposed to be a funnier beat, and it's just like, yeah, but everybody is just like on the brink of death and dying. You're making me feel that way more than you might want to. Oh yeah, that was super weird. There was a movie that came out Maybe 10 or 15 years ago. It was in the era of my life where I would come home from school and just watch what was on HBO. For like two hours, before my parents got home, I would just watch whatever was on. And there was a movie, I think it was based on real life, where someone had a baby in a Walmart and they named it America? Is this a movie that people know? That sounds familiar. This is a thing. That happened. I feel like it was maybe Drew Barrymore. Oh, I wanted to say Natalie Portman, but maybe Drew Barrymore. No, that might actually be right. Baby named America in a Walmart. Where the heart is. It's Natalie Portman. There you go. Stalker Channing, Ashley Judd, Joan Cusack. So it felt like that where I was just like, oh, this feels like it's based on something, but it's not. And it feels like it's a joke, but it's not. And you're right, Mike. Like, it just sort of, oh, like, I'm named Kmart because that's where they found me. And then all my family was dead and so i just kept that name i have the kmart passage in the book marked for book club but if you want a little spoiler i can give you her full name her name is dahlia julia mancini that is the character's name in the book i mean go by dj go by dahlia go by julia go by mancini go by any of that it's all better than kmart to me there's no real twist anywhere in this movie either you know like you pretty much know that alice is going to meet up with these people and that they're going to fight their way to the scientist place and that there's going to be a big battle or something she's got to end the movie fighting a creature there's a lot of driving through the desert there's a lot of driving through the desert the zombie kill oh i'm sorry to interrupt you kara i beg your pardon but zomboid they're called zomboids oh excuse me the uh zomboid kill when they first introduce the convoy is pretty awesome though like with the inagata devita soundtrack to it i think that is like one of the stronger beats in the movie but where's the rest of that sort of gung-ho adventurism yeah yeah i could have used some more sunshine of your love at some point or something so another plot point i guess like something in this movie is alice finds this diary all about this place, Arcadia, which is in Antarctica? Alaska. Alaska? Okay. So Arcadia in Alaska. Believe this or not, Joey, this comes back in later movies, at least the next movie. Starts with her on her way to Arcadia. Huh. Well, I feel like that's a very big trope in zombie movies and survivor movies especially, that they always hear of oh, there's in X, Y, or Z location, there's people who aren't infected. And 
it's never true. And I, I wish, in this world, in this franchise, do we get a sense, like, do they know what zombies are? Because you know how, like, in, like, The Walking Dead and everything, they're like, oh, we don't know, what, like, we've never seen a zombie movie. Like, we just are just blindsided by all of this. Oh, you mean, like, before the outbreak, did they have some concept of zombies? Right, like, because, like, if, in reality, like, if, if this happened now, we would be like, oh, there's zombies. Like, we know zombies, because they're part of our culture, they're part of our lexicon I don't know. I feel like based on how long in the first movie it takes for them to figure out that they have to shoot them in the head. No, because I like I feel like that's just like, oh, a zombie. You have to like do something to its head to make it not be undead. And it takes them like forever to figure that out in the first movie. Yes. So that's annoying to me. I mean, I get why they do that sort of, but it's annoying. I just wish that like there were more zombie movies because it's clearly a genre that's not really going away. Like, I think that we sort of hit a breaking point as a culture a couple years ago when things have sort of, not to add in a pun here, but like died down a little bit in terms of the frequency that, that they came out. But I just wish that there were more when they made them. There were more where the people were aware of the tropes. You know, I guess hope is a quintessential part of these kind of movies, and they, you always want to have hope that maybe things are better somewhere, but I just feel like when you see it over and over again and things like this, it just sort of feels like you've been there before. Yeah, I wish it was stated better in this movie or in this franchise, for that matter, whether or not they knew, like, oh, was there a Dawn of the Dead movie? And then the T-Virus outbreak, and it's just like, oh, the T-Virus just happens to do to people what we perceived in movies to be called zombies so like let's call them that or or something but yeah we barely ever get that in movies i feel like you know sean of the dead does the best to address where he's just like are there any zombies out there and he's just like don't use the zed word what i would like to do if you'll indulge me is give a sneak peek of book club because this is actually addressed on page 80 in the book so we know definitively whether or not zombies existed in the culture before so here we go on page 80 Chapter 6 starts like this. Claire Renfield had long since stopped noticing when the Hummer ran over one of the Zomboids. Otto had started calling them this as an alternative to LJ's nickname, which was Zombie-Ass Motherfuckers. <laughs> Given that they had kids in the convoy, not to mention the excess number of syllables, it was generally felt that a better name was required. Claire had nicked zombies simply because you couldn't take the word seriously. It conjured up images of bad movies and worse comic books. Zombies were fictional. Do not like do not like. I think we've come across that issue several times. Like for me, I always kind of have problems with like in the beginning of Prometheus when the android is watching Lawrence of Arabia on the spaceship. My mind just starts to wander like what other movies exist in that world? Like do Ridley Scott movies exist? And if they do, like is Aliens a movie that he can watch and bring up online? Like my I don't like when my mind does that, but it's involuntary. So the new plan is to go to Alaska, I guess because Alice shows up and saves everybody very dramatically that they're going to sort of like take her at her word, even though she's not aware that like this place actually exists. But they're all like, yeah, let's go to Arcadia. Like they'll take a vote and everyone's like, all right. But in order to do that, they need to gas up. So they go to Vegas, baby. We're going to give Daddy the Rain Man suite. Do you dig that? We're going to Vegas, Mike. Vegas! Vegas. You think we get there by midnight? Money, we're going to be up 500 by midnight. Yeah, <laughs> Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! But no one's kept the sand back. 
It's the one place in the movie where you know it used to be somewhere. We don't get a lot of ruins in this film. Like, it would be cool if we found out they started off in Los Angeles, but, like, everything has just been decimated. But it's like, LJ made a quip, like, I can finally afford some beachfront property. What I like about Vegas is that we finally get, like, a big, cool-looking set. I'm just thinking about how, like, Blade Runner 2049 also went to Vegas, and that was also sort of, like, like that was understated, and, like, but it was cooler. And, like, I mean, I also really, 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 really love Blade Runner 2049. Go listen to that episode of Boyfriend Material. But I feel like when you're going to go to a place that is capital A, capital P as an a place, like, I, I don't know, like, I sort of want it to be bigger and better and flashier. And it is the place they go to in this movie. And they get there really late. They get there like an hour or so into the movie and they're only there for like 10 minutes. They're there for a zombie attack and then they're gone. Like it would have been cooler if they got there earlier. Like if the movie was about sort of clearing Vegas out and holding up fort there. Escape from Las Vegas. She ends up in Los Angeles, actually, I think, in the next movie at some point. I remember her landing on the top of a building and wondering if, like, is she back in Vegas? Or no, she can't be, because in this movie, it's empty, which I thought it would be overrun by zomboids. Well, yeah, because, like, in The Walking Dead, aren't the cities, like, infested? And that's why people stay out of them. I don't know. Yes. I've only seen, like, a season and a half of it, so. I stopped watching the show. I'm still caught up with the comics, though. In the comics, they just got to a city where there are no zombies. There are no walkers. So I think it's probably true that most cities are infested with them. But I think over time, what's the time frame? Like, how long has it been? It's five years. We already said this, but that's fine. When did she say that again? Um, so it happens, I think, twice, because when they do get to Vegas, somebody remarks on how there's sand everywhere, and she says, five years, no one's kept the sand back. I wrote down the direct quote. And then I feel like there's another part also that says five years, but I know for a fact that she says five years when they're in Las Vegas. So the first two movies take place in 2002 over the course of like maybe 48 hours. That's very unclear, but they're definitely both like back to back. The second movie is like the course of a day or like a night. And then there's been this five year gap between the two of them. And she's been out wandering alone, I guess. Well, she's been up to lots of stuff in the book. <laughs> oh, really? As usual, they have to really pad these things out, so there's like a whole other movie going on in the book. So when they get to Vegas, they have a run-in with what are called in the book, and I think they're referenced in the movie once, or maybe it was a deleted scene, but these zombies are sort of like an homage to the 28 Days Later zombies, because like the original Resident Evil zombies are slow walkers, and here we got some runners. The scariest kind. I don't like it when they run. <laughs> They are the super undead, is what they are called. Ooh. And so the way that Isaacs created these, and I mean, I only know all this because I've watched the movie twice and read the book and all this crap, but it's on my mind. The reason these are, like, messed up is because he used the blood of the Alice clone that made it farthest in the labyrinth from the beginning of the movie. So, like, this is jacked up zombies on her T-virus blood. I don't know. I thought this was a pretty cool fight scene, all things considered. Yeah, it's pretty cool. She has these sweet knives. They're called kukri knives. I had to look it up because I watched this show on the History Channel. I don't know what it's called, but we call it Knife Show. And it's like Project Runway, but with knives. 
It's pretty awesome. And I was curious if they had ever made those knives on the show, and they had. All right, judges, we've got our cougaries on the table. Our tests are complete. This is our opportunity to really scrutinize these blades. Let's talk a little bit about Jason's blade, please. Well, Jason's kukri over here is truly a sexy beast. A beast because of its size and its weight. I love its construction. It's got that classic kukri design that performed the best. But the one problem is control. It's so heavy to wield up, it's harder to control, which I think contributes to why it didn't slash through the animal carcass. But it's what a kukri is supposed to do. But she's got two of them. She used them to cut off people's heads. They're not people. Undead. And this is all her, too, by the way. She did all of her own stunts in this movie. Every single frame. Yeah, I think she does for, like, pretty much all of the movies she does. Which is awesome. Yeah, and it also, like, it looks like her doing the stunts instead of, like, somebody... Because, like, sometimes they'll have a body double or a stunt double that has, like, a completely different build than the actress. And you're like, I, that doesn't even look like them. But her musculature and her body, like, looks like somebody who could be doing those stunts. And then to see her body doing those stunts is cool. So I think this scene, Dr. Isaacs made a critical error when he needed to observe Alice from a parking garage roof in Las Vegas. This dude had everything he needed for surveillance from his little lab, but he comes to Vegas to watch his creatures tear up the place. First of all, like he almost gets shot by Alice, but he gets bitten by one of like the super undead. What was that about? I don't know. At one point, the voice of Regina George from Mean Girls popped into my head <laughs> saying, why are you so obsessed with me? He was so obsessed with her. It was kind of hilarious and creepy, but also funny. I feel like Ian Glenn is doing a good job of trying to be like this hokey, larger than life. So like, I feel like he's trying to get there. I don't think he quite makes it, but I think he's trying to go grandiose and sort of over the top. If you watch The Shadow, there is some incredible overacting in that movie. Like it is just wall to wall. Just Wait, was Ian Glenn in that movie too? No, but it's the same director. It's the same guy directing it. So, like, I know he can be fun and have fun with certain material and sort of wink an eye at the audience and stuff. So, like, I feel like we're getting as close as we can get with its potential with his character. Just, like, his the bureaucratic frustration and just, like, the no one understands my genius and the arrogance and the way that he bickers with the White Queen. And she's just, even though she's an AI, she's, like, presented as a little girl, but he just, like, doesn't care. He just talks to her, like an adult by the third watch i really appreciated what he was bringing to this thing but i don't understand why his character would be in vegas observing this on site it is his downfall because they follow him back to his lab and in the process carlos has like a really awesome sequence i thought that was cool they did a really great job with the number of zombies around that station yeah, I did have, like, a thought, which is, like, I mean, I understand the purpose of throwing all those Alice corpses into an open ditch. You don't have to dig new ditches for the new corpses. <laughs> open air decomposition happens a lot faster. But, like, why have this open ditch of what is, like, basically human garbage, like, human flesh garbage? in the middle of this desert where there's all these zombies on the inside of the fence. Like, even just throw around the other side of the fence, you know? I feel like it's, like, a little bit too much of a temptation for all those zombies to come climbing over the fence. 
I love that observation, though, because it's so true. You know, they have right. the sample. They're done with her. Why not just throw it over the fence? There is a deleted scene. This is so stupid, too. It needed to be deleted, rightfully. But the way that Dr. Isaacs gets, like, new zombie subjects is he has, like, this cherry picker that, like, goes <laughs> out over the fence, like, over the crowd, and he puts, like, a noose around one of them and, like, drags it back. He, like, points it out to his buddies, like, that one there. I want that one there. But, you know, they have this cherry picker thing, so, like, they could easily just, like, load up the Alice's and, like, dump them over the fence. He'd even build a sweet catapult, launch her body through the air, spitball in here. It's good, though. Like, any of that stuff would have been welcome. I do like this explosion, though. I like when Carlos goes down. I thought that looked really great. And then everyone but Alice gets on the chopper because they're going to take a helicopter from Nevada to Alaska. What could possibly go wrong? Just want to wish them luck. (laughs) Tune in to the next movie to see if they make it. And then we're to the big showdown. Alice fights Dr. Isaacs. But Dr. Isaacs, in the book, refers to himself as Tyrant, which is apparently one of the creatures from one of the actual games. So we're getting into real game territory here now at the end. And also, I read somewhere in my research that the full name of the T-virus is actually the Tyrant virus. T-virus is just the abbreviation. Oh, look at that. Very ominous name. I think the guy knew what he was creating when he named yeah. it the Tyrant Virus. It's, like, it's not like he named it the Butterfly Virus. Let's get market research on this name here. Yeah. Well, we learn about it in the second movie, that it was created by this doctor who... And this actually, watching it this weekend, was the first time that I've seen that movie since I myself have been diagnosed with a genetic mutation that causes all sorts of health problems. So that was a new lens to watch this through. It's a little problematic. The doctor has some sort of genetic degenerative condition that he's passed down to his daughter. So he does all this research and creates this T-virus, which as long as he keeps it in check with this antiviral, allows his daughter to move freely without the use of a mobility aid. He himself uses a motorized wheelchair. So it's like there's this kind of uncomfortable genetic explanation as to their genetic testing research thing as to why this whole virus exists in the first place. Yeah, and that was explored in the last movie, and that girl is absent from this movie. So something not too cool happened to her in the book between the last movie and this movie. In the movies, they never talk about it again. (laughs) They just never mention her again, right? Not only do they never mention her again, but in the final chapter, they basically retcon away most of that Interesting. So ultimately, it's the same idea. There was a girl with a disease, a degenerative disease that her parents were trying to cure her. But that girl was the original Alice herself. Whoa. Interesting. And so you find out at the end of the last chapter, the original Alice is awakened from cold storage, hypersleep, basically. It's crazy how much they rewrite the history of this franchise. But at the end of the movie, you have... Elder Alice, Alice in her like prime, Alice Prime, and then you have child Alice as like a hologram and they're all like sharing the screen together and I thought that was like kind of cool. Yeah, that's interesting because we don't see the little girl in this movie necessarily, but we 
see kind of an avatar of her with the White Queen, which is the AI system. And we also saw an avatar of her in the first movie as the Red Queen, which was the AI that was in charge of the Hive. They don't really revisit that AI either in the later movies, which I think is a real missed opportunity. That was a fun relationship, I feel. Like, the the AI was like a total character. I don't think that's something from the games either. I think that's something the film created. Again, my memory of the at least the next one is like very scarce except for that opening. And then part five, I actually watched just some of the other day in the background while I was doing stuff. And then the final chapter, I only saw one. So I think, yeah, not until maybe the final chapter does the Red Queen or A Queen program show up again. I think I talked about this on the Jurassic Park episode or maybe the Jaws episode that we've come across this a few times on Wistful Thinking where the plot of a movie or like certain technological aspects of the movie are actually like more plausible now than they were when the movie came out. And I think that's very true of the AI in the first few movies and also just like the Umbrella Corporation. Amazon? Yeah, exactly. The explanation that like the Umbrella Corporation, their products are in four out of five households and like all this stuff. I was like, oh shit, I can see very easily Amazon becoming the Umbrella Corporation someday. Probably sooner than we think too. It's already happened. The audio commentary had Paul W.S. Anderson, the director, and one of the producers, and they were trying to claim that when they arrive at the Alice clone that's sort of in that water sphere, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, The concept of levitating water in a sphere is, like, real. You use, like, super magnets and all this, and he's like, it's just you can't do it on that big a scale, but he's like, I want you to know that, like, it's based in real science. I don't think you need to go around convincing anybody at this point that any of this needs to come from anything legit, but I found that to be kind of funny. I think that is kind of cool imagery, though, like, just conceptually. In the book, they're just in, like, tubes and stuff, so, like, the director kind of had, like, at least a different idea for something as far as, like, what a clone might be, sort of, like, grown in. So what do you guys think of this final battle between Tyrant and Alice? I like the look on his face when she stops his little claws from piercing her body. That's really him under there in the makeup. He said it was quite a departure for him. I thought they could have gone a little bigger with some of his powers. Like, he just is kind of like Tentacle Man, which, okay, you know, like, it's scary and freaky, but, like, you're just going to, like, shoot tentacles at me? You're not going to, like, blow fire or, I don't know, spit venom? I do love seeing a woman, like, take down the men who, like, turned her into the perfect weapon to defeat them. That's always a nice thing to see. And, like, in that fight with him, but then also at the end of the movie when she She's like, I'm coming for you guys, and I'm bringing friends. That was thrilling. She ends up trying to sacrifice herself. She's like, we're both going to die down here because I've lured you into the laser grid room, you idiot, that you should have known about because you've only <laughs> watched like 90 Alice's like wander through this building. He gets lasered. He gets cubed in half. It's one of the best parts of the movie, of the first movie, is seeing that guy in the laser grid get cubed. So we'll do that again. But we find out that her clone didn't die. Like, I thought her clone was dead. But no, it's like awake and it knows what to do. And it knows how to, like, operate machinery and stuff. And it turns the laser grid off. I thought Alice could have just used, like, her psychic powers to fight the lasers. But, you know, it's cool. It just feels like they sort of opted for like a deus ex machina of sorts, but I guess it's cool that it sets up what's coming next. You know what I mean? Like Alice should have been able to 
figure that way out of it on her own instead of just like shrinking to the corner like a little helpless little child. Well, hey, 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 hey. She did get out of it by herself. There just happened to be two of her. (laughs) That's a great call. All right. That's fair point. In the book, it's alluded to she has like a bit of a psychic connection to all of these, like a bond, so that every time one of them dies in the gauntlet thing, like the labyrinth, she feels it. Like she doesn't know what it is, but like she feels something has happened. Again, it would have been kind of cool if they just tried to establish that there was some kind of link that she was like controlling it or something, or they could see through each other's eyes or something, but... Well, she has like some nightmares, doesn't she? Where she's like seeing that stuff happen. So there's some kind of psychic connection there. The final scene, this little tag is great. One thing that's kind of weird about it is that the movie up until this point feels like we're done with Resident Evil. We had the first one, which was sort of like right before or during the outbreak, and then the second one, which is the outbreak, and now it's like in the future of the outbreak. So like, where can you really go from here? But this final scene is like awesome. I'm really glad it's there. I just kind of wish if you're going to have like, I just wish Alice teamed up with herself earlier, I guess, like maybe saved herself, like saved the clone or something or found one in a ditch and it wasn't dead yet. Like that's maybe one other thing they could have gotten to a little sooner, but it's definitely awesome that you see like the two very distinct Mila Jovovich looks. One of them is like world weary and the other one is just sort of like fresh and like, like the blank slate. Yeah. They're going to be coming for you guys. They gotta somehow get from Vegas to Japan by the next movie. I just hope they learn how to drift. I'm sure there's another helicopter there somewhere that'll take them all the way to Japan, because that's where they're going. Where do you refuel over the Pacific Ocean? I guess Hawaii. No, there's no way you're making it to Hawaii in a helicopter. No. Maybe there's an umbrella boat somewhere they could take. You absolutely cannot take a helicopter there. Is there anything else about the movie you want to talk about? Any any scenes in particular, characters, fun moments? So there is one we had touched on it briefly before the Hills Have Eyes scene. She comes across this like abandoned TV station or radio station. I'm not sure which it is. She goes inside. There's a woman there. She sees her back is to her, right? Something about a baby. My baby is sick. And Alice takes the baby and she realizes that it's a baby doll and then she realizes that she's surrounded by a bunch of psychotic murderers I guess yep, yep, I yep. don't know so this was actually one of the last additions to the last drafts of the script in the original script Alice discovers the abandoned station and she sits there watching old footage on the screens depicting the destruction of the world due to the global infection and her narration unfolds at that point when the script was rewritten that scene was dropped and it was substituted with this assault scene which one of the things that I really like about the Resident Evil movies is that similar to the Hunger Games you see a woman get traumatized over and over and over again and not a single time does it actually involve rape, which is rare for movies that have women in them. And so she she doesn't actually get sexually assaulted in this scene, as far as we know, but she does black out and like goes unconscious. And we actually have like a first person view of that with the camera. I was watching it. I had it on and I had the captions on. And as she's blacking out, the ca- I forget exactly what it said because the word wasn't chuckling, but it was like men laughing, men doing something laughing adjacent that I don't remember the exact word that they used and like seeing her black out while these men are like laughing in this very sinister way was 
was really uncomfortable and I did not like that at all. And so when I actually like was reading the Wikipedia article and I came across that clip and that this had actually previously been a clip where we actually get a lot more information about the world and what's happened between these two movies, I didn't like it. Didn't like it at all. They should have stuck with the original plan. That is uncomfortable, and it, it it's a little weird for Alice to be kind of caught off guard like that. It feels a little out of character that that she would that that would happen. She'd get into that situation. Yeah, right. Totally out of character. And I also feel like you know the intent of that scene is just to get her in the pit with the dogs anyway, like and to get those badass blades that she gets too because she picks those off of them. Oh, is that where she picks those up? Yeah, she gets those. She kind of looks at them on the table and she's like, oh, I'll be taking those. But you're totally right. Like, she could have just been, like, wandering into the radio station or whatever it is for, for supplies and come across, like, the dogs. And right. And just, like, had to fight the dogs. Um, and then, yeah, go into the backstory. I wonder why they changed that. Maybe it's just because they wanted it to be a little more of, like, you know, like, homage, like, to a horror thing. Like, I think that's what's missing from this also is, like, it's not very scary. Like, there isn't a lot of horror, necessarily, moments, I feel, that really push it over the edge. It it feels more action-packed to me than horror-packed. And so maybe that's they were trying to get. Also, I just looked up the Hills Have Eyes remake that came out in the mid-2000s, and it came out the year before. So that could have also been influential desert weirdos were in vogue (laughs) yeah one other thing about women in this movie and in the franchise in general they're the survivors like in most of the movies i think the people who with the exception of a few male characters the people who stay alive or even if they don't make it to the end of the movie they make it further than a lot of other people in the movie they're always women and i think that's awesome first of all and i also think it's really cool that they let them cry especially in this one claire redfield cries kmart cries and even alice cries in this movie and i think that that is really awesome because here are these like you know badass women characters and like they're allowed to be tender too (laughs) they're allowed to have feelings too i like that we can contain multitudes yeah i thought that was a actually a great shot right after carlos blows up and like alice is punching the gas and like you could see that like tears have been streaming down her eyes yeah and it's not like hysterical crying it's not a woman being you know out of control of her emotions or whatever like that it's it's very like low-key crying and i just appreciate it as as a person who cries all the time yeah you know like if there was an actual zombie apocalypse like this like a i don't know if i'd have lasted that long unless i'd come across this caravan but b i would be a crybaby for sure like i'd be crying myself to sleep every night like way more than the characters in this movie did so joey any last words about the movie no since we started talking i put the first one on my tv on mute and it does i mean we were talking about it earlier especially you guys especially Kara. i think it just does look so visually different like everything mm-hmm. is blue everything is green right now as they're going down it's almost hard to believe that this movie is in the same franchise because it's just so visually different and i don't like this movie very much i don't think it's bad i just don't really have an interest in watching it again but i still like the first one i like the idea of the franchise and i like everything that Kara likes about it. I like that that kind of thing exists, but that's about it. 
Nice. I don't think this is a good movie, but I don't think it's terrible either. But I think that's the problem. It's like it's very middle of the road. I've seen a lot of it before, done better, but still cool enough to check out once or twice. They tried something different. I mean, whether or not they knew that there were going to be more, they said, let's make this a departure. Like, it's not going to look anything like the previous movies. And those took place at nighttime. Like, this will take place at daytime, almost exclusively during the day. They took a chance, and I give them a lot for, for going there, for at least not repeating themselves, because... The next two movies, at least, I think it goes back into a direction that people wanted more, but I appreciate them at least giving it a try. All right, so that's that. We've come to the end of the movie segment, so you know what that means. Third time's a book. Third time's a book. (laughs) So this book's crazy. How long is it? This book is 353 pages, but the movie itself is only like 95 minutes, maybe, so... You got 353 pages of book here, which is a lot more book than movie. This is a novelization by Keith R.A. DeCandito, based on the screenplay by Paul W.S. Anderson, based on Capcom's best-selling video game. Resident Evil Extinction, all bets are off. Oh, there's a subtitle to the subtitle. And on the cover, there's a silhouette of Alice, and in the background are the ruins of Las Vegas. All right. I'm not going to lie. I got a lot of passages. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I I wish I could. You guys have both been on the show before. You know how it goes. Sometimes it goes better than others. Okay, so I guess I'll start with some Alice. We learn several things in this passage about Alice that we don't learn in the movie. I forgot that this one starts off right away with product placement. So not only is it like rampant in the film, but it is in the books as well. Oh, yeah. That pristine BMW motorcycle that she was riding through the desert. (laughs) It's so clean. It's ridiculous. So page 40. The BMW was simply her latest ride. She'd had a chopper, but it washed out during a run-in with some undead back in Ohio. Alice had, of course, taken care of them, but it left her without a vehicle. She had had to walk from Youngstown to the Cleveland suburbs. She avoided going near Columbus. That was her hometown, and to see it now would be just too painful. Before she found the BMW, left on the side of the road, its former owner decapitated and decomposing. Alice had seen no signs of the head, but the body was covered in bite marks, so it probably had been made undead and then killed by beheading. Whoever he was, he had a good taste in bikes. The K-1200 was the biggest, most powerful road bike in production until they stopped producing road bikes or much of anything else. We learned that Alice is from Columbus, Ohio. Crucial information to know. And she loves BMW. We also learned that her last name is Abernathy. I don't know if that's ever said, and if it is, I totally missed it. And her real name is Janice? I feel like I read that at some point today. She has another alias. Yeah, Janice Prospero. Okay, yeah, and that, then that was, like, cut out of the movie. I forgot that I had a couple more little trivia tidbits about the movie. This Blu-ray release was the first Blu-ray movie that offered the picture-in-picture picture feature. Like, what were they showing picture-in-picture? Picture? Oh, I have no idea, but you could do it if you <laughs> wanted to. And this was the first Resident Evil movie not to be released in the VHS format. Well, it's a very modern film in that way, then. Okay, so this book, much like the Superman 3 book, like explores background characters a lot. And this is someone that's part of the actual convoy. So this is Murph. This is a little bit of his life before the outbreak. 
Murph hadn't been a trooper long enough to get a pension worth a damn, and he didn't have no skills that nobody could use. His wife hit the road pretty much the minute he turned in his badge and gun. He moved to the city, figuring there'd be jobs in Indianapolis you couldn't get out in Carroll County, moving into some flea trap and taking jobs as a bouncer at a strip club. That worked out fine till one of the girls charged him with sexual harassment. What? Murph thought she was crazy, since all he was doing was appreciating her finer qualities, but didn't nobody believe him. So he strangled the little whore and left Indiana for good. Wow, that took a turn. It's like, hey, Kara, you know all that stuff you love about the franchise? Like, let's add a whole bunch of nonsense in here that's going to drive you crazy. Oh, that escalated, like, really quickly. Yikes. Here's a great product placement moment in book. Skipping all the way now from page 50 to page 134. A little bit of prep for this. So this book is broken up into two halves. Part one is before and after, and part two is fight for survival. Wait, what? So, like, in part one, every other chapter is, like, before the outbreak and then after the outbreak. So, essentially, something that didn't happen in the movie and then part of the movie. And then the second half of the book is basically, like, all movie stuff that we watched. Okay. There's a lot of weird stuff going on in part one, and a lot of it has to do with Jill Valentine, who's not in this movie, and we learn of her adventures. She basically starts off in Baltimore, and she basically cleans up Baltimore. Like, she liberates a convention center from a bunch of squatters with machine guns and things, and she gets a former cop to help her, like, clean up the streets, and it's like she's got her whole mission going on separate from this entire movie and never really sees any of these characters like ever again really she's just like off on her own through most of the book uh, and we don't get any of that in the movie but here is jill and i thought this was kind of funny i just was laughing out loud when i read this part page 134 chapter 10 after as jill valentine drove her prius through the remains of baltimore she found herself without a glimmer of hope i love that she's driving a prius how do you think bmw feels about jill driving a prius instead of a bmw she had been lucky to salvage the prius a hybrid gas electric car as it got her much further on less gas than the suv that she'd been in before true the suv had a stronger cage which made for better protection against scavengers Oh my god. Whether human, undead, or animal, the world was awash in all three. But with more and more gas stations coming up empty, the Prius made it easier for her to keep moving. Ugh. Listen, I buy it because I personally drive a Prius, and I forget to get gas all the time. It was a huge problem with my previous car that I would forget to get gas until, like, a pretty dire situation. And now that I have the Prius, it's like, what is gas? And why do I need it all of a sudden? It's fantastic. Also, I feel like the aerodynamic nature of the car makes it that much better for running over zombies. They just roll over top of you the way that it's shaped. I mean, I'm sold on the Prius. Like, it's the car of the apocalypse, basically. (laughs) That should be their tagline. Yeah. So much other stuff happens in this before chapter. I'll just quickly give you some coverage we get the outbreak at the raccoon city wall where it just gets like the wall just gets like overrun and people get out we get the outbreak in san francisco firsthand we actually get a little more of jill when she's like caught by authorities but later released by the fbi it's very kind of useless she's just like being interrogated and they're like okay you're free to go we go to the white house and we actually get a president unnamed but the president is like dealing with the outbreak and the oval office 
gets infected and like there's a whole lockdown. That's the movie I'd like to see. We get a shot of the White House at the end of the next movie and it's just like surrounded by zomboids. And then we get like all this other stuff with Alice where a lot of this stuff was cut out of this movie but there's a satellite orbiting the planet that can control her for a certain amount of time whenever it sees her. In the book it takes over her. She takes the girl from the second movie Angie. She has like the cure in her. She drives the girl to Detroit and meets Dr. Isaacs and he's he has Alice under mind control and he forces her to shoot the girl in the face. Oh my god. That's how she dies and that's why she's not in this movie. And so Alice has this whole thing in the book where it's like anytime I, I can't be near people because I could potentially be controlled by Isaacs for a period of time. Oh right. Yeah. I can't be near people because I just caused them to die. That's hammered home a bit more in the book. Jesus. Here's a bit of LJ. LJ gets a couple chapters of his own. Everybody, you know, gets sort of their own sort of point of view chapters, but LJs are just like out of control because this whole book, I, I mean, I don't think I've read much recently with this many curses in it. Like, the F word is just everywhere. The N word is in this book like seven times. What? Once or twice, LJ himself, like, refers to himself that way, but later on, it's used, like, definitely as a slur towards some people. But this LJ stuff is just kind of funny. I just had to read, like, a paragraph of it. This is how chapter 12 starts on page 156. LJ looked up at the sign, Desert Trail Motel. Truer motherfucking words, he muttered, as he and Carlos headed toward the motel's entrance. On the sidewalk in front of the place, which looked like it used to be a truck stop, for the type that LJ wouldn't have had his ass caught dead in for no fucking thing was a big pole with signs pointing in different directions. Looked like that motherfucking thing on MASH. It pointed to Alaska, Denver, Vegas, Rome, Paris, Mexico, Berlin, London, and a bunch of other places LJ rather be than here. Well, except Vegas. Only motherfucking fools went to Vegas. And, like, this goes on for several pages where LJ is just, like, cursing up a storm in his head as he's talking to himself and exploring around. That's where he gets bit eventually. There's just a lot of cursing in this book that I was not expecting. That's probably just like lazy writing. Like, how do we make this character seem like he's like gruff and from the streets? Like, let's just have him curse a bunch. And what's even stranger is Alice and Claire and Jill and even Carlos to a degree. And even, I mean, Dr. Isaacs has his own personality, but the rest of them, they're not really written so much in, in a different voice, you know? I don't really feel like Alice's voice is as is distinct from Claire's in the book, but LJ and Dr. Isaacs are definitely distinct. I just got like two more to go. They're kind of short. I just want to do the Kmart's origin story. I think this was a good passage. This is on page 228. She had been born Dahlia Julia Mancini, and there wasn't a single one of those names she was willing to be called in public. Her friends mostly called her DJ, but she didn't really like that either since it made her sound like she should be on a radio station or something stupid like that. Ugh. When everything went to hell, she'd been working in a Kmart, and eventually she'd just holed up there, along with the other employees and most of the surviving citizenry of Athens, at least for a while. Eventually everyone died, and there was one old guy who had a heart condition, and as soon as he died, he turned and started biting everyone else. It got worse and worse, but the survivors managed to get the upper hand, mostly thanks to Kmart's gun counter. But when it was all over, there was just DJ and four others. Before too long, they all died too, and from stupid stuff. Charlie got a broken leg, Eileen got an abscessed tooth, and both Yvonne and Willie got the flu. None of those should have been fatal, but they were. That left DJ to fend for herself, living off whatever supplies were left in the giant store. When Claire Renfield and her convoy showed up, it was a lifeline that DJ clutched. 
Yeah, so, like, I wish that this movie, instead of taking place five years later, or, you know, could have taken place five years later, but I want more of that in-between time. Because at the end of the second movie, the outbreak is just reaching the walls, basically, of Raccoon City, and then the Umbrella Corporation is going to sanitize Raccoon City by detonating a nuclear weapon right above it. So, like, I want to know, how does it get from there to around the globe? And, like, how does society break down in the process? That's what's really interesting to me. And also, along the way, all the stupid ways that people die that have nothing to do with the zombie outbreak, you know? Because it's like, when all of our engineered comforts start to fall away, and, you you know, we can't refill our prescriptions and we can't get antibiotics and, you know, we don't have reliable sources of clean water. It's like all of these like return to basic human needs when we can't meet those, like that's how people actually die. And then like the zombie thing too. But like, I'm just really interested in that kind of like in between time that we don't get to see a lot. But I feel like that's better suited to franchises that are not as in your face as this often is. Yeah, that's fair. That's a fair point. Like, I think that's better for, like, a game like The Last of Us or a movie like Maggie or something, where it's sort of like a more quiet, contemplative zombie story. There's a lot of things out there that do that sort of... There's the outbreak, sure, but it's also people trying to get by. And, you know, even in a sense, like, A Quiet Place is not zombies, but it's something mm-hmm. sort of like that, like trying to rebuild, like, a normal sort of life. There's stuff out there that does that. It's just that this is never going to be the franchise that does that. This is like, hey, how do we have, like, crazy zombies running at people where we can have kill them with knives? Fair point. Let's see here. I'm trying to pick the best ones to end on here. There's another one of this background character. It's another one of those like crazy, weird backstories. So I found like these are always fun. So I'm going to read this one. Page 299. So this is another guy in the convoy. If you had told Chase McAvoy 10 years ago that he'd be hanging off the Eiffel Tower in Vegas shooting at horror movie rejects that had murdered several of his closest friends, they'd have sent you to the rubber room or at least put you under arrest. He'd been able to do that during his all-too-brief tenure as a county sheriff in Texas. That reign had been brief, ended by a scandal that had been caused by an error in judgment on Chase's part. That error was in thinking that the quarterback on the high school football team wasn't above the law. The state religion in Texas was football, and nobody messed with that. If the quarterback raped and killed one of the cheerleaders, well, that was a tragedy, true, but the state championships were coming up. Chase hadn't seen it that way, and he'd put the quarterback under arrest. Suddenly, there were pictures. They'd been photoshopped, but try explaining that to an angry populace who wanted their star quarterback on the field, and besides, that little slut was asking for it, wearing that short skirt and tight sweater. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. (laughs) Oh my god, why? So there's a couple things about that. Like, number one, I like that there's 50 pages left in the book, and they're like, hey, let's add this in here. Like, you know this character that we really haven't talked about ostensibly? Like, let's just give him a crazy backstory about a crazy character who is not even in this world... Like, you just read, like, three sentences about a quarterback. Like, you're reading a background character character. in the life of a background character in a novel that's based on an adaptation. Like, it's just, like, (laughs) to go from this movie to a quarterback, like, a fictional quarterback (laughs) in a Texas town, and then beyond that, like, the cheerleader that he raped and killed, how many degrees removed from the movie that we've been talking about for an hour and a half? Like, what? 
Um, I was already a little tuned out when you were talking about photoshopped pictures. What was that part about? It didn't make sense. Even if you were listening, it didn't make sense. That the quarterback raped and killed a girl, and then the guy, Chase, whatever his name is, threw him in jail. The, the actual character from this actual movie. Yeah, he was the guy in the cowboy hat, I think. Okay. And the town wanted the quarterback back on the field, so there were Photoshop pictures. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, they don't say what they were. So that is completely unnecessary. But that's interesting because in the second movie, there's this journalist character. Like, they're doing this, like, weird found footage-ish kind of thing in the second movie. They don't use much of that footage, but there is a video camera that people are holding at various points throughout the movie. And the whole purpose of like filming what's going on is to like get the story out there about like what the Umbrella Corporation is doing and this outbreak and all this stuff. And at the very end of the movie, you find out well, they actually, the sequence is very interesting, especially in this time of fake news and whatnot, that you see a montage of news reporters talking about this, you know, footage that implicates the Umbrella Corporation and all these terrible things, and then it cuts to more montages of reporters talking about how already this footage has been discredited as an elaborate practical joke, and they're actually looking for the people who are behind this. So it's interesting that this kind of hoax-ish fake news kind of element gets brought into the book in a not-so-interesting way. Wow. I can't believe they included that. Yeah, what bummed me out was just like how this franchise in general celebrates women in in a lot of ways, you know, or is it, it, it's trying to. Yeah. And then that the books would just like include stuff like that. Like it's so besides the point, but that's what these novelizations, I mean, that's why I mind them. I mean, this is what yeah. you find. Like this is, those are the reasons basically. If I thought Hollywood hated women, well, the authors of novelizations of movies hate them so much more. Hollywood's secret subset. I was going to read this last part about Dr. Isaacs being tyrant, but I, I'm going to end with just this little nice little bit here since there's been so much like troublesome stuff so just i'm going to end with alice since we started with alice a very very short part this is the very end of the movie when she's fighting dr isaacs in the laser grid page 347 the laser sliced through him literally cubing him wait hold on hold on what literally cubing as opposed to what metaphorically cubing him and i'm reading a book too so like it could have just said cubing him right yeah (laughs) so that's great It moved inexorably on towards Alice. She was ready to die. Then she felt it. Another mind. But the same mind. Somehow, images flooded her brain, and she realized that she was being telepathically contacted by the clone that she thought had died in her arms in Isaac's lab. The clone was standing at Isaac's computer workstation and inputting commands into a keyboard. In front of her, the screen displayed the words, Laser System Deactivated. In front of her, the laser grid fizzled out and the lights in the room returned to normal. Speaking simultaneously, both Alice's said, Yeah, you're the future, all right. The clone asked, So what happens now? Is it over? Alice thought about the dozens, if not hundreds, of clones Isaacs had created in his desire to turn himself into the future. The AI had pointed her the way to a cure. Now, she also had a way to exact revenge. No, she said to her sister, it's only just begun. Cool. According to the book, there's roughly 13,000 Alice clones in the facility. (laughs) 
I tried counting like what they showed in the final shot of the movie, you know, it's like that awesome shot where they pan out and they show all the bubbles and everything. And, and there's like about five in a row. And then there's like, I'd say maybe 10 or 15 rows you can see. There's definitely hundreds, not thousands. So at best, 65 as opposed to 13,000. Don't forget the 96 corpses outside. There's one thing I just want to mention, and I'm totally sparing you guys, but I'm going to probably read this list at the end as like a little bit of an extra. So if you're listening and you want to hear this list at the end, I'm going to read it. I think the author had a bet with his editor. Do you really think he had an editor? (laughs) Well, I'm starting to wonder because there are, no joke, and I I might have missed two or three, there are 95 names in this book. Wow. There are 95 characters mentioned. Wait, did you count that or did you find that somewhere? I wrote down okay. while I was reading. Why would you do that? Because <laughs> it <laughs> bothered me and baffled me at the same time. I'm starting this book and I'm like, okay, that's interesting. This guy's got a last name. All right, we're meeting another guy. He's got a last name. I was like, 56 out of 95 people have a last name in this book. Wow. It is out of control. And I mean, we don't just get like Jill Valentine, Claire Renfield, but there's like Betty has a last name. She's Betty Greer. That's the Ashanti character. She's Betty Greer. I mean, LJ is Lloyd Jefferson Wayne. It's out of control. Now, are these novelizations canon within the world of the Resident Evil franchise? Some of them are. I think it's sort of like Star Wars and Star Trek, where there's like a whole expanded universe of the Resident Evil. Like, so you could go read Resident Evil novels. If this guy wrote Resident Evil Apocalypse, the novelization. So he's done some previous Resident Evil work. But yeah, I think there are. Like, there's also a lot of video stuff. I think work is being too generous. The word work. My favorite name, though, is Joseph King, because if you shorten it, it's Joe King, which is joking. So, like, maybe he's just joking about this whole fucking thing. Because, I'm serious, there's, like, Matt Addison, Al Cowan, Emily Love, Tom Hoyt, Jim Nabel, Tim Kaine, Butch Mowbray. Tim Kaine! He was the vice presidential candidate. Like, I'll spare you the list, but just know that I have it, and maybe I'll post it in the show notes, and I'll do it no, that way. No, you know what you should do? You should do a somber, like, reading of them. <laughs> As like a memorial <laughs> in memoriam. But that brings us to the end of the show. That is Resident Evil Extinction. Thank you, Kara, for joining me. Joey, thanks for coming back. Now let's all hop into our Prius and get the hell out of here. reanimated episode of Third Time's a Charm. Thank you very much to Kara and Joey for dropping by, and I hope this episode was worth the wait. It was cool to finally do a video game movie, and I hope that there are others out there, but to be honest, I'm not sure any other video game franchise lasted long enough to make a third movie. Is there a Silent Hill 3? I know there's at least three animated Pokemon films. Will I get that desperate one day? Probably. Hey Mike, when are you going to do a comic book movie already? Patience, my young mutant friends. Soon. Catch me on the November 7th episode of Foodie Films as I make my triumphant return to Kyle's show for the movie Diner, which is not a cannibal movie. This show kind of turns into a pilot for Diner Talk as we get a little off track and just start talking about other movies, 
be an uncles and the highly anticipated Aquaman, King of the Brocian. As I mentioned at the top, the new season of Cinemakers will drop November 19th. Join Kara, Joey, and myself as we watch and discuss every movie in Amy Heckerling's filmography. New show alert! New show alert! Starting in January, Joey and I drop Tom Tom Club, which is actually two separate podcasts. Cruise Club, the Tom Cruise podcast, and Hanks for the Memories, the Tom Hanks podcast. We are very excited about Tom Tom Club here at the network, and I hope you loyal listeners check out those shows when they arrive, and I hope you're checking out all the other great 20-plus programs on the network. Is this a gateway show? That'd be cool. For all things Third Time's a Charm, check out cageclub.me, at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram, at cageclub on Facebook, and at Third Time's a Charm page on Facebook. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts live. Write me at 3 at cageclub.me. That's T-H-R-E-E at cageclub.me. I'm your host, Mike, and until next time, remember nothing says safe driving in the apocalypse quite like a Prius. That's a magic number. Yes, Three. it is. It's the magic number. Three may stub at me, and that's a magic number. What does it all mean? This is in memory of all of our fallen friends of the zombie apocalypse. AJ Briscoe, Al Cohen, Alan Kistler, Alice Abernathy, aka Janice Prospero, Alexander Slater, Andre, Andy Timpson, Angie Ashford, B, Betty Greer, Blair Manfred, Brendan Moody, Brian, Butch Mowbray, Carlos Olavia, Dr. Cassandra Patel, Chase McAvoy, Chris Murphy, Claire Renfield, Cliff Nadiner, Colin Wainwright, Cowboy, Dahlia Julia Manzini, aka Kmart, Dylan Matthews, Dogmeat, Dorian, Drew, Dwayne, Emily Love, Erica Simone, Evan, Graves, Hicks, Dr. Howard Margolin, Humber, Jacques Mercer, Dr. James Soroth, Jared Peters, Jason Williams, Jasper, Jill Valentine, Jim Nabel, Jensen Burton, Joel, Joseph King, Kenneth Manaya, Kim Pinto, Kirby Johnson, Lawanda, Lisa Broward, Lloyd Jefferson Wayne, aka LJ, Lou Molina, Mahmoud Al Rashan, Margie, Marlo, Matt Addison, Maureen, Michael Farber, Monique Lang, Morgan Hurtwreck, Motown, Omar, One, Otto Walensky, Pablo Villanovu, Paul DeFreeman, Peyton Wells, Pina, Perino, Peter Michael Sullivan, Plexico, Richard Price, Riot, Robbie, Robertson, Roshonda, Dr. Sam Isaacs, Sebastian, Dr. Simon Barr, Snoopy, Spencer Parks, String, the President of the United States, Dr. Timothy Kane, Tish, Tom Hoyt, Tracy, Warner, and Yolanda. <laughs>